0: You're gonna go ahead and read scripture here. Romans th- three. Yeah. Romans three twenty-one to twenty six. Why don't you grab a mic? See if that one's hot. This mic over here, guys. I don't know if it's on.
1: It is. Uh, this morning's scripture is Romans three twenty-one through twenty-six. That's page uh, nine forty-one. <clears throat> Romans three says. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood And to be received by faith he did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus
0: good stuff Romans we love it thank you Toby so welcome to Grace Life this is Grace Life Bible Church in case you don't know where you ended up today. We're excited about God's grace. We need it. It's um, easy to talk about. And then now and then in life, you, you bump into it in a real, real way. And you're like, I need that. And so um, we, we're excited about knowing God and his word. We're excited about experiencing grace and extending it, growing in healthy relationships, and impacting those near and far, whoever God brings into our circle of influence, okay? And then uh, we're disciples who experience and extend God's grace. So um, we have a great team here. You know, we recently added uh, Toby, who just read Scripture. Uh, I really appreciate the team we have. We have um, also added a new elder, Wesley. He's on board, and uh, you'll hear about a class he's teaching at the end. So that's good. So I just, I found out, I was looking at my computer, all my files of you know, sermons and year by year and week by week and month by month. And it turns out that five years ago, Yesterday to the day was the first time I preached here. And so I think I've been here five years. And so (laughs) I thought (laughs) I Don't really feel that way, but I thought (laughs) I thought it's really funny. So um, (laughs) Anyway Yeah, we are um, I'm seriously I'm grateful to be here grateful for the the elder team the staff team for you guys It's just a fun place. I mean, throughout my weeks and months, people are like, what do you do? And do you like it? And I'm like, you know, I really do. We've got a good church. It's fun. People are jumping in. And it's just a really joy to be with you all. And so that's good. Looking forward to um, another five years that uh, don't end up like that other slide. Anyway, so um, we're looking forward to that. So we are uh, in Romans. It's a unifying, not just a faith journey, but a unifying faith journey. From ruin to redemption, I added this, for Jews and Gentiles in the Roman church. Because remember, that's the deal going on. We've, We've built this case. I'll keep alluding to it. But Jews and Gentiles in the Roman church, that's where we're at. And so here's the theme of Romans. Paul is not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone. That's key. Everyone, Jew and Gentile, who believes to the Jew first and to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. For faith, it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So um, that, that is packed right there. I mean, you, you've—well, rem- I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's hit the slide, and I'll go to, go to that point. Yeah, we're talking about falling and finding. Um, and so are you okay? How do you handle it when you fail, when you fall? What's your mental script? What's your skill set? Do you have a skill set when you fall short? You fall into sin, or you you— Advertently or inadvertently sin, whatever, anything. Where where do you go? How do you handle that? What do you do? Do you beat yourself up with shame? I'm a bad person. Or do you receive grace and admit, I did that. There's no denying it and the law condemns me, but I have found Christ and I'm forgiven. This is a skill set that we need to have. So, um, uh, we we talked about this before uh, in This first century culture, the word gospel, euangelion, was a common word. The Roman Empire was looked to the one that provided the gospel. The gospel simply means good news. When the Roman Empire conquered a new territory, they had new resources, new people, new money, new food. And so they would send out an announcement to the existing colonies Hey, the gospel, we have conquered more people and you get more stuff. And so the, the Roman gospel, they took the Greek Hellenistic gospel and just added power and the state behind it. But um, this, was, this was a common understanding of the good news. And so Jesus comes along, the disciples come along, they take that term and they say, well, here's a, a better gospel. Okay? It's a gospel of salvation. And so the gospel of Hellenism, Rome, is, is, is built on man is the measure of all things, and it's aiming at freedom, pleasure, and power. So this is, this is um, through education, healthcare, entertainment, athletics, which is exactly uh, our world. All right? So we've seen that before, but um, again, a review of the church in Rome, because this book is written to some specific people with a specific problem. Paul did not just sit down and have an assignment, hey, write a very articulate, detailed explanation of the gospel. We read it that way, don't we? We're like, Romans, oh, that's the place to go to, to, to like a lawyer laid out his case. And while that's true, that's not why he wrote it. He wrote it because of Jew and Gentile division in the church, as I've been explaining for three weeks. So, going to keep going here. Um, remember the church at Rome started uh, probably Pentecost... Uh, AD 33, some visitors in Jerusalem went back to Rome. Paul didn't establish the church. And so it's a Jew and Gentile church for uh, quite a while. And um, in that church, it's not one big church like this. There were just house churches. Now, if you came from a Jewish background with your law and your Jewish heritage and all that stuff, you would go to a Jewish house church. And you would do church in a very Jewish way. Meanwhile, Gentiles coming out of this 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 pleasure and sexual indulgence and drinking and just it's off the charts and that's normal for for rome if you come out of that and you find christ well you're going to go to a house church with gentiles and you're doing church in a very different way than the jews do church okay so and they both answer the question how are we okay with god differently the jew says we're okay with god because we have the law and if you want to be okay with god gentiles you got to do what we got to do the whole package. <laughs> it was intimidating. I'll explain later. But anyway, and so then you've got the Gentiles. If you want to find righteousness and be okay with God, well, the Gentiles were like, well, we've got freedom. We can do it coming out of Hellenism. We'll do whatever we want to do because we, Christ is a righteousness. So we'll just do whatever and, and both are extremes. Okay. And then about the year 51, Claudius comes up and he expels the Jews from Rome. Here's a verse in Acts 18. Paul went to Corinth, found a Jew named Aquila, his wife Priscilla, who used to be in Italy, that got kicked out. And so it says, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, Acts 18.2. So they're gone. The Jews are gone for about six years. They left Rome. Which, what does that do to the church? You've got Gentiles coming out of this paganism for six years. They're in charge, and they're doing church in a very Gentile way, very non-Jewish way. Then political climate changes. The Jews come back. Hey, we're home. We're back. We're going to start doing church like the Jews with the laws and circumcision. Y'all got to get. Cir- and they're like, well, "What?" And so we have this this tension. Who's in charge? But underlying just who's in charge, and underlying how do we do church, is the question: How are we okay with God? How do we find righteousness with God? Is it through the law and the whole thing, or can we just throw everything off like the gent? So that's that's the tension here. Okay. And 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 um. There's, we we talked about this in chapter 2, like a week ago, seems like a year ago. Anyway, um, judgment is a big problem. They're judging one another, right? The Jews, all uptight with their law, are judging the Gentiles. Well, their gospel made them better, and the Gentile Christians are, are, their gospel made them better than the pagans, and and the gospel isn't supposed to make you better than in in the sense of judgment, but that's what's going on. They're they're splitting here, and... um, all right. So, Paul, in writing Romans, addresses three groups at least in these first three chapters. You've got the wicked pagans in chapter one, and then you've got former pagans who are believing Gentiles, and you have believing Jews. So, uh, chapter two you have believing Gentiles and believing Jews, and then chapter three is where we're going today. Here's an outline of the whole book. First four chapters reveals God's righteousness, and the, that creates a new humanity. Believers a new community a a united community of believers and it fulfills god's promises to israel But really all of those are there because paul is headed to a very practical point starting in chapter 12 It transforms and unifies the church and that's what they need. They need the transforming unifying power of the gospel. All right, so Remember the jew said salvation righteousness justification is achieved Go do it. You can do it. Follow the law. Follow the law better. Gentiles were understanding the law, the, the righteousness, salvation is received, but they had some moral issues. Their, their conscience was defective, for sure. <laughs> what didn't uh, convict them was a problem. They're like, this is great. They're like, no, it's not. Okay, we talked about conscience last time. Conscience, anyway, so. um. All right. So. Chapter 1 and chapter 2, as Paul um, is writing that, and they would read Scripture in public. That's just how they did it. So, so imagine somebody's reading chapter 1 and 2, or just chapter 1, and just railing the pagan Gentiles. The, the Jews would be like, yeah, man, amen. Amen to that. Whew, what a mess. And the Gentile believers, oh, yeah, that's, we're not there anymore. We used to be, but amen to that. Those people, remember in the gospel, there's no people, but that, that's how they would view that, Okay. Their gospel, they thought, made them better than, and they're judging other people. And that's not at all what the gospel is supposed to do. But the problem is, Paul's gospel is open to the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, now think of this. Throughout the, all the Old Testament, the Jews were God's people. Everything was for the Jews, okay? And then, and then Christianity, you, you flip a page, and in the New Testament, it's, Christianity is like a subsect of Judaism, And so all of the Christians are under the umbrella of Judaism. And so they were forced to become like Jews through the law and circumcision. So the book of Galatians is all about this, book of Romans. And so this growing problem is, what do we do with Gentiles who want to follow and worship and be saved by Jesus? Do they have to be under that umbrella? Or or, or what does it mean if they go out of the umbrella? what, What does that mean? And these questions are coming up here what do we do with those people? Two specific issues. Do they have to be circumcised? And how do we have fellowship? Those are the issues that that permeate the New Testament. And that question is asked and answered in Acts 15. So here's Acts 15. Some men came down from Judea, were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That is crystal clear. We achieve righteousness through following the law. And you better too. In fact, if you don't do the law, you cannot be saved. And so this is obviously not the gospel of Jesus, not the gospel of Paul. And so it's a problem. And So the end of this chapter, here's the end of the chapter, uh, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden than these requirements. And I just want to pause here and clarify this because it sounds legalistic, but it says to the Jews and to the Gentiles, They do not have to follow the law. They they just should abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols, from blood and strangled and sexual immorality. Those things were laid down in the Old Testament way before the law ever showed up. And and the the Hellenistic Gentile believers need to hear there are limits. You know what I mean? You're following God, good for you, but, but there are still moral limits. You, you can't just stamp Hellenism and Jesus and, like, have a big party, okay? So, anyway, I just wanted to help us understand that. All right. So, they're, they're, they're splitting the church because they think they have two different routes to finding righteousness. Two different ways to say, I'm okay with God, and that was a problem, all right? Um, and But this, this, this builds up to chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 1. This all builds up if Jews and Gentiles are equally under sin, if God judges impartially, and if if we find God's righteousness by faith and not through the law, the Jew is asking, wait a minute. Does this mean there's no difference between the Jew and Gentile? And and that being a Jew is a a waste of time? Like, what is the advantage of being a Jew? Go to chapter 3, verse 1. Take a look at it. Very first phrase then what advantage has the Jew? See, this is exactly where he's led his people. He knows, I've been talking about all this, and you're probably thinking, well, this is a waste of time. Or what's the value of circumcision? Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. They were the the gatekeepers of the text. They should know better. One of my kids, when he was little, there was another kid in, in school named Noah. I don't know how old Micah was, but like, super little, I don't know, four or five or whatever, six. Anyway, um, he came home and, and he was just like, Noah got in trouble with a name like that. He should know better, <laughs> right? So anyway, so I, I just thought that was kind of cute. But, but here the Jews, they should know better. They have the law of God. It's no mystery. Here it is, okay? So they should know better. Um, so the first point he makes here in verses three and four, uh, Jewish unfaithfulness doesn't wipe out, the faithfulness of God, all right? So if, and he says, what if, verse three, what if some Jews were unfaithful? If you look at the Old Testament and you're asking the question, well, well when, I'm, you, have, you have quite a selection, uh, when were they unfaithful? It's like, we have like a, like a buffet, but anyway. Uh, one primary time was the promised land, Joshua going in there. It just, it just didn't work out really well. And so I did some math here. Um, so two of 600,000 had faith, Joshua and Caleb. And if you do the math, that's .00003 and repeating. So that, that percent had faith. And, and 599, 998, and two, or eight, did not. And so that's 99%. Point nine, you get the point. I'm not going to, anyway, they'll blow together. But, but his, his question is, well, wait, a, what if they were unfaithful? Then is God unfaithful? Because they didn't uphold the law. They failed. They fell short. What is God's response? Will God be merciful? He was merciful to them. He continued to pursue them, uphold them, and discipline them, but provide for them. And so that's exactly the argument here. He says in, in, in the next phrase, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Verse four, by no means let God be truth, though every one were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Now, remember, when you're reading scripture and anytime it says blah, 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 as it is written, blah, 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 you got to stop and, and right click on that little tiny letter there. And it'll, it'll show you where he's quoting from. And then we have to go to that passage, not just the verse, because that's not how it worked. When they quoted a verse from a place, they in their head have the whole passage and they're, they're using that as a little thin bridge to get your mind to go to that whole story. And they're expecting you to understand that story well enough to pull the heart of that story and go, Aha! In this case, this is quoted from, what does it say in your Bibles? You got a little, a little marker? That you may be justified in your words and prevail when you're judged. This is church. Go ahead. Let me. Psalm 51. Yeah. In Psalm 51, uh, it says against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words, blameless in your judgment. This is, this is where his mind is. Well, what's Psalm 51? It's, it's about David and David's sin with Bathsheba, which was sexual sin, which is very common in the Roman church with hell. Okay, you see what's going on here? So the sexual sin is the context of, of God judging that. It's, God is still just... Um, So a case he's going to be making here is just possessing the law doesn't excuse you from the judgment of God. And so God was merciful to David. God will be merciful here, but there are still limits, all right? Um, If God is merciful to these people, why are you judging each other? Uh, That doesn't make sense. So he goes on to verses 5, 6, and 7. And he says that... Jewish unrighteousness really highlights the righteousness of God. And this can be abused. You know, I I have a mind that just I just see the loopholes. You know what I mean? And I'm like, okay, well, if my sin that magnifies God's glory, I'll just sin. And don't tell me you didn't think of that. But anyway, um, that's what's in Scripture. Verse 5. If our righteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath? then how could God judge the, God judge the world? And so he, he, um, he's saying your unfaithfulness doesn't excuse you from God's judgment. Verse seven, if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned? And so here's the thought. If, if, if lying just go ahead and, and glorifies God, well, then he's getting glory. Why is God judging me? And this is, this is an interesting concept. Um, some people still think that way today. In verse, or, uh, verse 7 and 8 here, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, why not do evil that good may come? Their condemnation is just. Why not do evil that good may come? Because, well, wait a minute, Paul, you're saying that, that our sin just magnifies God's glory. Well, let's just Give him more glory in sin. And that Hellenistic Gentile believers kind of were there, were there. They're just sinning that God, and so we have these, these, um, these problems. But remember that very first, the theme up there, uh, chapter 1, verse 16, 17. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Um, Rome had a gospel. It was a gospel of power, wealth, indulgence of every kind. And Paul comes up with this gospel of sacrifice, limits, morality. You know, th- th- those aren't the anchors, but they're, you know, they're out there. And, and, and Paul's gospel is, is going to be viewed as a gospel of shame. Like, well, what is that? <laughs> Who's your main guy? A couple terrorists, traitors? What, what, what? Where are you getting this? So, so if you're a Roman citizen hearing Paul there is almost an insurmountable shame cultural obstacle to overcome. You are going to lose money, family, jobs, career, status, if you say yes to Paul's gospel. It is not socially advancing to believe in Paul's gospel, all right? So, but he says, I'm not ashamed. And his point is, if I'm not ashamed, because it is the power of God. Romans are going to lock onto that, and they like, well, what kind of power? power to forgive sin set you free, just like we talked about in communion, all right? So, so why not just do evil that good may come? And his point is, if you're thinking this way, you should be condemned. That's not even remotely close of what's going on here. And the sad part is there are people today that think the same way. Let me unpack this for you and me. Some people assume that because God has blessed them, God won't condemn them. God blessed you with a good job or some, something or whatever it is. And you're like, oh, all my ways are pleasing to God and he won't condemn me. That's not what this means. Some people today think that the character of God's love means that he can't condemn me. It's interesting that, that we pick God's love. In our culture today, we fabricate and assemble our God, even in evangelicalism. It happens all the time. Proof. We don't even have a category of holy in our culture, in our language. We don't even think that way. You cannot escape the concept of holiness if you read Scripture. And we don't, it doesn't even enter our words weeks and weeks and weeks. You see what I'm saying? So we just pick God's love and I, um, Rob Bell wrote this book called Love Wins, like, I don't know, 10, 20 years ago, a long time ago, and it was universalism. He's like, God's love wins. Everybody ends up in heaven because God is love. Well, that's great that you can just pick and choose and say, this is his dominant trait. And so if, if does it sound judgmental? If, if, I, if I say that if, if Rob Bell is saying that you can oppose Jesus' teaching, reject him, but you still end up in heaven, is that judgmental? I think it's just being accurate. Right? So, I mean, it's, we, we, with, a, with a soft heart and, and a compassionate heart. So, it reminds me of this quote I read a long time ago, and it kind of typifies our broader culture. It says this, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep. Just enough to equal a warm cup of milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of God to make me love a black man or pick beets with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy three dollars of God. Wilbur Reese wrote that. I don't know when. But anyway, sometimes we want parts of God, but we don't want the parts that would make us do those things that, that we're uncomfortable with. We assemble our concept of God. Anyway. Okay, some people think that even though they have sinned, God is merciful and won't want, there's no price tag to that and that um, everything we do glorifies God, so therefore it doesn't matter what we do. So in many ways, we're right there with these Hellenistic Jewish tensions. We can relate to them. We can see them and feel them. So Paul didn't obviously teach, do whatever you want, just sin so that God— He didn't teach that, but he was accused of teaching that. So we we can't get on board with just run around and sin and it doesn't matter because God is great. But also the other opposite extreme, some people run around and they think their prime directive as a believer is to avoid sin. The prime directive of the believer is not to avoid sin. Jesus, as he walked on earth, didn't have avoiding sin as his main thing. His main thing was doing the Father's will, responding in love, loving the Father, being abiding with the Spirit... And that led to decisions and values that avoided sin. But which one of those is primary? You see what I'm saying? Don't hear half of what I'm saying and run out the door and woohoo! Preacher said I can do whatever. Yeah, not not that's not what we're talking about. And so here's a quote. I I, I love this quote. Um, We have put so much emphasis on avoiding evil, we have become virtually blind to endless opportunities for doing good. We have defined holiness through what we separate ourselves from rather than what we give ourselves to. I'm convinced the greater tragedy is not the sin we commit, but the life that we fail to live. I read that like seriously 15 years ago and I'm like, man, that that makes sense because we can get so wrapped up and especially in families you can get so wrapped up in the shame aspect of, of a family member who sins and our approach can be like i I'm, and we don't say this but it's like i'm more concerned about my image and my shame than your heart spiritually see what i'm saying and so it just just unpack that as um as we do that so he goes back here and says what advantage is, is the jew and paul's like well you have the law you have access to the law but the law was a window into the heart of God to whom you are supposed to relate by faith, not by doing all the stuff. That's, that's where the disconnect happens. So their, their question is, well, well, what's the point of being a Jew? And he's like, the point of being a Jew is that you are stewards of the text and you should know, you should know better where this all is leading. Okay, so then we go on to um, chapters or verse uh, 9 through 20. Are they better off? And then, then he just goes ballistic on this stuff. And this, as it is written, and, and, and if you dig into this, it's going to take like a long time because he's got about eight or ten different passages all over the place. And so he is just going down there. He, he says, as it is written, none is righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. No one does good. Not even one. kind of sensing a theme a little bit. None is righteous. And so he quotes Psalm 14, Psalm 53. There is none who does good. Psalm 53. Um, there is none who does good. They have fallen away. Together they become corrupt. There's none who does good, not even one. So this is where he's going. And then the next verse, 14. Their mouth is full of curses. He's pulling that from Psalm 5. Uh, their mouth, their throat is an open grave, flatter with their tongue. Uh, under their lips is the venom of, venom of asps. I think that's kind of a serpent snake or something. Um, their feet run to evil shed blood and, you know, our feet, our, guide our feet on the way of peace. And so you've got their paths of ruin and misery. And so Isaiah and Psalm 36, their feet run to evil. And, and he's, what he's doing here, it he just goes on and on and on. But the, the, the point is all are guilty before a holy God, Jew and Gentile. You are together are like all guilty. Okay. So possession of the law, Jews, possession of the law, is not a ticket to break the law. That's what they thought they had. We have the law. He won't judge us. We can do our things, whatever we want. Um, so imagine with me that you're a, a, a Jew following the law, and you start to hear Paul and the Spirit of God is at work and in you, in your heart, and you start to entertain this concept in everything about your life, your culture, your, your calendar, The hours in your day, your money, your family, everything is shaped by your view of Judaism and the law. And you hear Paul saying this, imagine the horror, the panic, as you start to understand, wait a minute, none of that matters at all as I seek righteousness. That's just stripping your soul. You're gutted. What then? What do I do? That had to be terrifying, which I think is why most of them just wanted to kill him instead of listen to him, right? I, I get it. That's, that's terrifying, okay? Um, he says here, look at uh, verse 19 and 20. Verse 20, For by works of the law, no human will be justified, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law reveals sin. It doesn't rescue from its penalty. You're just in more trouble, all right? So, he finally gets to the good news here. And this is, uh, this is a, we know Romans 3.23, right? You got the little pamphlets, Romans 3.23, For all of sin to fall short of the glory of God. And this is another cultural thing we kind of we take apart and we yank it out and we, we assemble it with other stuff and we're on our way. But, and, and I don't mean any shame here. I'm not trying to make fun or poke fun. I'm not trying to trick or trap you. No guilt trip. But do you know what verse 22 says? Do you know what verse 24 says? Context. There is no distinction. The Jew-Gentile tension is all over this thing. All have sinned. Verse 24. All are justified by grace as a gift whom God put forward by his blood to be received by faith. It's not just this is the sin thing. Everyone sinned. It is that. But also, all are justified by faith as a gift through Jesus Christ, the blood of the new covenant. That's a pretty good package, all right? So, no distinction. We all fall short, all right? So, if we're justified by following the law, then there's a division between Jew and Gentile because the Jews have the law, the Gentiles don't then there's two different ways, apparently, of finding justification, but that's not the case. Paul said, we have a new understanding that righteousness of God is found in Christ through faith, and so if we're, if we're justified apart from the law, catch this, this is where he's going. If we're justified apart from the law, then the Jew and Gentile are justified in the same way, by the same gospel, by the same God, and the members of the same church, and they shouldn't be fighting each other, okay? This is where he's going. Not only that, if it's true, then justification is and always has been by faith. And that'll throw the Jew to the Old Testament and they're like, wait a minute, the law's there. Yeah, the law with Moses is there, but there's also Abraham with faith there. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, they were the housekeepers of the text. They should know better. All right? So justification has always been by faith. No group, Jews, no one of you has the upper hand, the final answer. You're all, we all sin, we all need the same access through faith to the same righteousness of God. It comes through faith, and it comes, if it comes through faith, well, what's the point of boasting, right? I mean, after this, because boasting and judging was a big deal in this church, and he's just, he's just going, where then is boasting? I hear it all over the place. On what grounds can you make a case that your boasting is appropriate if you are dead in your sins, equally Jews and Gentiles before a holy God? Why are you boasting? And I, I <laughs> just like, right? I just, the fly in the wall moment. It's like, oh, well, yeah, I'm just not really sure. I'm so, can you move on, please? I'm feeling convicted. Anyway, I don't know what they did. But he says, we, we, we don't boast. And then I love the way he ends the, ver- the chapter in verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Because that's logical too, after all this. Well, then just throw the whole, it's bad. The law is bad. Just get rid of it. And he's like, no, look at the last four words. We uphold the law. What? He upholds the law in the way God designed the law to work, which was to, reveal sin to expose shortcoming we we fall and we fail right we fall short and we find grace that's the purpose of the law to to point out i do not measure up here i need external help i can't come up with my own rules of righteousness i fall short i need to find grace the law is to beat you up make you fall so short you seek out jesus you find him and then paul says in galatians 3 once you've done that, you're done with the law because he understands there's a new heart. There's a new desire. And now I'm, I'm, I'm willingly following Jesus. I don't have just a bunch of stuff to do, all right? It's a great, it's a great, it's an amazing truth, all right? So same body of Christ, same story that we're following. Jews, Gentiles, you're part of the same story. How, how far back does that story go, though? Does it go to Moses with the law? Or, or does it go all the way back to Abraham And that's chapter four, all right? We'll take a 15-minute break and then get into chapter 4. I'm just, I'm just kidding. Anyway, we'll take like a six-and-a-half-day break. Anyway, so here are our key questions. Where do you go to answer, are you okay with God? Right? Like I said, Nebraska, are you okay? <laughs> um, are you okay with God? Where do you go? Performance, family, grades, reputation, zip code, the whole bunch of stuff we come up with. I'm okay with God. Maybe it's because <clears throat> I'm not like chapter 1. All, that, all those sins, at least the important ones, I'm not, you know, the really bad. I'm not them. So I'm okay. Well, we have to to look at the holiness of God and we're leveled like Jews and Gentiles before a holy God. How do you respond when others close to you fall short? Shame? Blame? Or can you guide others to the throne of grace when they fall short? What a great opportunity when someone close to us falls short. And you can talk about the disappointment, the pain, and and whatever it is, trust, but, but but eventually... Here's the grace that I found in Jesus when I fall short, and so we want to do that. All right, so Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you want unity. You've equipped us for unity. I pray that you would give each of us windows into areas of our soul that we haven't even been aware of that maybe needs cleansing of your spirit and and renewed Love, compassion, for some people that just drive us nuts or disagree with or whatever. Um, We want to be marked by true unity, and that will be found when there's true differences, even pain. We give that to you and pray that you would be healing us as as we joyfully pursue you this next week. Amen.